When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. tuned into the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 54. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the premier rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. Find out more about them at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And don't forget to check out their Upland Bird Training Camp going on this spring. If you can make it, you're going to want to be there. Check it out, pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dog Truck Callers. We've got a whole lineup of super versatile tracking, training, locating collars. Doctor has it all. If you're in the market for a new tracking and training collar, I highly suggest you check out the Dogtra 2700 T and B, fully capable e-collar combined with a beeper. It's really functional. Take care of your training needs. Get you set up out in the field. The collar does it all, except it doesn't have GPS. But don't worry, Doctor's got those too. Check out more from Dogtra at Dogtra.com. 
and by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, providing your bird dog with 100% complete and balanced nutrition. Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food is made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance from your bird dog all day long. Learn more about Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food at yukonuba.com. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters, the finest store for hunting and fishing clothing, sporting art, fine jewelry, and travel gear. They have what you need to get you where you're going at Gordian Sons Outfitters. Go to their website, you might find something you like, gordyandsons.com. And finally by Dakota 283 Kennels. You can find them at dakota283.com. Dakota 283 Kennels are built damn tough. They are a single molded one-piece kennel. They've got a handle molded right into the top, easy lifting in and out of the truck, lockable door. It's a frame metal door. You can slam it shut. It's got a latch on it, no pins, nothing to break. They design their kennels with a military-grade resin. These kennels have been tested at temperatures down to 40 degrees below zero. What more do you need? Tough, rugged kennels keep your dog safe, secure, and you can have one. And you can sweeten the deal if you use the promo code NORTHWOODS50DD. That's NORTHWOODS50DD. You go to Dakota283.com and purchase a kennel, you're going to get 50% off one of their dine and dashes. Remember that promo code NORTHWOODS50DD, 50% off a dine and dash with the purchase of a Dakota 283 kennel. All right, this week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway is Adam Cunningham. Adam shared our episode last week. Thank you for that, Adam. Adam's going to have a new Project Upland t-shirt real soon. And anybody listening could be next week's winner. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by leaving the podcast a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, make sure you get all the updates on the new podcast episodes, share the podcast post just like Adam did, or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion by emailing me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, one more reminder for the folks out there listening. Project Upland will be at Pheasant Fest this coming week in Schaumburg, Illinois, just to the north of Chicago. I can't wait. I'm going to be there. We're going to have a booth set up. We're going to have some Project Upland regulars there in the booth with us. We're going to be right next to the Rough Grouse Society, which would be really cool. So I think between Project Upland and RGS, we're going to have a nice little section of the floor space there. So come on and see us. Visit the Rough Grouse Society, visit Project Upland, and come down and visit all of the good people from Pheasants Forever and all the other exhibitors that are putting on this awesome event. I can't wait. It's going to be a blast. Hopefully we'll see you there next week at Pheasant Fest. Project Upland will be in booth number 118. All right, here we go. Today's guest is Ashley Peters. Ashley is the communications manager for Audubon, Minnesota. She is also an upland hunter. Over the last few years, Ashley has gotten more involved into the outdoor, specifically hunting lifestyle. She started upland hunting, and I really wanted to hear her story on how she wound up getting into upland bird hunting and falling in love with it like the rest of us. We talk a little bit about her work at Audubon, then we transition into upland bird hunts, bird dogs, shotguns. It was a fun one. I hope you enjoy it. Let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Ashley Peters.
All right, Ashley, we are live on the Project Up One podcast. Welcome to the show. How are you on this Friday afternoon? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. And the blizzard's over. I know that you were in it yesterday. I was too. But <laughs> now it's now it's pretty cold. Is it pretty cold where you're at? Yeah, it's been right around zero for most of the day. So we almost had a couple degrees there around noon. <laughs> yeah, I was I was ready to be kind of done with that stuff after last week, but, uh, I guess we're, we're in for a little bit more of it now. Yeah. You know, we live in Minnesota. It's, uh, it's to be expected. So whenever it happens, I'm like, Oh, right. I accepted the responsibility of going through the whole winter when I moved here. <laughs> Very true. And, uh, how predictable a couple of Minnesotans on a podcast, we start off talking about the weather. I will take the blame for that. <laughs> Well, it's relevant because, um, so like you said, we had Public Lands Day yesterday, which was um, hosted by Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Yeah. Obviously, um, a whole bunch of other organizations that were also involved. Um, but the weather was a was a big factor. Um, that was an event that, you know, they were expecting hundreds of people to show up for and had the RSVPs and, you know, everything was set to go. And then that storm blew in. And I mean, we lost at least two thirds of the people that were going to be there, if not more. But that said, we, we still had a pretty sizable crowd for as bad as the weather was. I think we had over a hundred people in the rally in the rotunda and public lands day is something that was pulled together, trying to get a lot of different outdoors and conservation-focused groups to work together and think about, you know, long-term, what are we doing to keep our public lands and what are we doing to conserve them and protect them? Um, so this is this rally was really an effort to get legislators to pay attention to all of their constituents and all of the people in the state who really care about their public lands and and want to see those things prioritized. So we, uh, like I said, there were over 100 people, and then um, they had 32 constituent meetings with legislators, which, again, was impressive because a lot of legislators also didn't make it to the Capitol yesterday. So uh, we were pretty happy with how it turned out. Yeah, that's great to hear. I know that you know, personally, I was pretty bummed. I was planning on making the drive down to the Twin Cities area and attending Public Lands Day. It was uh, it was pretty well advertised and promoted event. I got a bunch of emails from backcountry hunters and anglers, and I know just for me personally, Rough Grouse Society was going to be there, and obviously Pheasants Forever had a heavy presence there. So it was a a lot of the people in the groups that I follow and associate with were pretty excited about it, and it just so happened to be one of the worst travel days you could have. I mean, we had a, pretty much a, a snow-nami blizzard over the entire state for almost all the, all day yesterday. So, But it is True. good to hear that, that you were able to make it and others were as well, even though that you know the timing wasn't great and you didn't have everybody there. It sounds like it still was a pretty cool event. I saw, saw quite a bit on Instagram from BHA and, and a bunch of other groups, and it definitely was – it still went off without a hitch, I would say. Yeah, I think it really shows the hardiness and the passion of the group. I I don't know many other groups of people that would have shown up, you know, yesterday at the you know, might have had 10, 15 people if it was anything else, but you know, being public lands people, we've we've got the gear, we're okay with driving through some snow and um a little bit of adversity as long as it's not too dangerous. So, yeah, there were there were a lot of good people there. Um, 
like you said, Pheasants Forever had a strong presence. Howard Vincent did the did the MC. Um, we had Sarah Stroman from the DNR, uh, the new commissioner. Oh yeah, she spoke yesterday. Also, Representative Becker Finn was there. Uh, Senator Kerry Rood uh, spoke. Ducks Unlimited was there, and uh, of course, Lan Tani, the CEO and president for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers was uh, one of the keynote speakers. More importantly, were you able to lift a pint for public lands last night? <laughs> um, we did. We went <laughs> to Lake Monster Brewing um, and just kind of celebrated the day. What was interesting to me was over the course of the day, you hear a lot of these facts, right? So even in conversation over a beer, you're talking about the 12 million acres of public lands and $17 billion in consumer spending annually just in Minnesota that's generated by the outdoor recreation economy. Um, Also supports 140,000 jobs. But, you know, like those stats are really good and it it shows um, it shows the need economically. But the things that always stand out to me are the personal stories that people have about public lands and that was that was an especially enjoyable part of going and and hanging out with all these other people who care about being outside and conservation was just getting to hear their stories about you know hunting certain lands fishing on certain lands you know birding so you kind of got the full spectrum of just how much people really love their public lands and you could tell from their personal stories. Yeah, that's really cool. That's ultimately I was, I was hoping to get out and spend some time in that community, right? Like all those people coming together under the same flag, under the same banner and, you know, the same good cause. Like that's, that's what I was hoping to get down there. And so it's, it's cool to hear that some of that still happened for sure. Yeah, definitely. So we kind of jumped right out of the gate talking about public lands in Minnesota, which I'm glad we did. I wanted to touch on that, but let's rewind a little bit, Ashley, and inform the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. And, and, uh, eventually we'll get to how you wound up on the project up and podcast, but why don't you kind of put us on the map, tell us where you're from and, and what you do. Yeah, I am the communications manager for Audubon, Minnesota, and the work that Audubon does, in case any of your listeners aren't familiar, Audubon is a national organization of a bunch of different uh, chapters and state offices and centers. And we focus on bird conservation. And we really, Audubon came about during the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, uh, the, the original passing of that in 1918. Um, and so ever since then, the organization has been really focused on bird protection um, and advocacy. So what I do is I do communications, um, a lot of talking, a lot of writing. And I, I have to say, I'm not the world's best birder, but I do. I love talking about habitat and water, even air quality, and how looking at birds can can be an indicator for how each of those things is doing. Um, not to mention, usually, where you find birds, you find people. So we do a lot of science, policy, education work um, on a range of things. But 
you know, a concrete example of something we do here in Minnesota is we do a lot of restoration along the Mississippi River. So if you've ever been down on the side of the river, some of those really mucky areas um, that you might kayak, canoe, or boat past, um, Audubon does a lot of restoration work along the river um, to keep the floodplain forest healthy. And that benefits birds like cerulean warblers, wood ducks, uh, prothonotary warblers, all kind of um, birds that use that migratory pathway. Yeah, excellent. That kind of got me thinking. Recently, I've started to see conservation groups like the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, you know, it's it's beneficial to, although that organization kind of represents one bird, the American Woodcock Society, so often when we talk about conservation, it's it makes sense and it's important to highlight that, you know, what, what benefits one species most often benefits another. And I know that with, I think, specifically the golden wing warbler, a lot of the work that's done to help that bird also benefits the American Woodcock Society. So like that's an interesting partnership between an organization like AWS and an organization like Audubon. Are you kind of up to speed on some of that stuff? Do you see that sort of that partnership in conservation very often? You know, I've seen it in a lot of different ways. I know that the American Bird Conservancy is pretty heavily involved in, in that effort that you just mentioned. Okay, yeah. And they do a lot of the habitat restoration and the, um, you know, the advising of, of how to go about that. And it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. To see groups working together that, you know, have maybe a little bit different mission, but it's really great when they can come together like that. Um, so like you said, there's that up North. I got to go by the way and band woodcock chicks. Oh, really? As part of that, it was, if, if people haven't done this, it is adorable. It's like, (laughs) It's like you're going on a hunt, right? So the whole thing is exactly like you're headed out into the woods to to get a bird. And then you get to a spot and instead of a bird, you know, like there is still a bird that flushes, but instead of shotguns, you just hear like sometimes like tiny little peeps. And then everybody like crouches down and gets on the ground and like feels around because you don't want to be stepping (laughs) on these chicks that are that are hiding in the brush. And so you can get down on the ground and feel around and try to figure out where the chicks are. And then you put little bands on them. So it's a, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting twist on, you know, what you would expect being out there in the woods with hunters and their dogs, but it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Did you do that at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp? I did. Yeah. Oh, awesome. All right. Yeah. Very cool. I've, I've, uh, I've gone through Jerry's clinic and and done the certified woodcock banding thing i i did some apprentice banding like you i went out with some licensed or certified banders i haven't actually had a chance the last couple years to get out and do it on my own although i do kind of have plans to do that but yeah it is a very unique it's a unique experience typically the way that i think it's most often done in the way that we do it is like you said they're using pointing dogs to run in likely woodcock cover dog goes on point and you walk in and I think in a perfect scenario, uh, what normally happens is you'll see a woodcock hen flush and she'll kind of flush low and sort of do like an injured wing flush. And that's kind of a good indicator that there are chicks on the ground. And then at that moment, it's that moment you alluded to where everybody kind of freezes and (laughs) you get low and you start looking around and it's, it really is, it's kind of spectacular how you're standing there, you're looking around 
and all of a sudden you'll see one chick and then you keep looking, you keep looking and you're, you're hoping to find four. And it's just, it's kind of crazy how you walk into that spot and it's like utter chaos for a moment and then it's all quiet. And then like you kind of peel back the layers and you spot these little chicks on the ground. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Those adaptations of those chicks is just, it's amazing. I mean, you cannot see them. You are right on top of them and you can't see them. I, I was floored by how invisible they are. And I don't think I found one chick the whole time I was sitting there looking and it would always be one of the biologists who's been doing it for a long time. that would be like, Oh, right there. They just, I thought that they were so invisible. Yeah. Their natural camouflage is as the adult woodcock is, it's very, very good for the chicks as well. And they're, you know, they're completely motionless and you, if you weren't looking for them, you would never see them, right? Unless they unless they move or something. And then <laughs> when you when you grab one, you have to quickly grab the other ones, and then you put the bands on. Yeah, it really is a it's a cool process, and it's pretty amazing to see those birds. And it's like I'm I'm gonna blank on this, and all the woodcock banders are gonna get mad at me. But it's like it's such a short time before those chicks hatch, and they're able to fly. I want to say it's like two weeks. It's just it is. it's amazing yeah, that it's they really can go quick. that fast, and all of a sudden they're you know they're flying, and that's why. Really, the banding window is so short. It's when when the nests are starting to hatch. You've got you know basically two weeks of that peak season to to get bands on chicks, and it's it's a pretty neat thing, that's for sure. Yeah, it's very cool, and uh, it's kind of play off that theme of you know having um, more general bird conservation groups work with some of the hunting groups. Um, Audubon did a project a couple of years ago that was uh, with Washington County Pheasants Forever. And we teamed up and worked at the school in Stillwater that um, they had this 10-acre lot that was just basically kind of dead grass, and they weren't really using it for anything. And we decided to do um, a prairie restoration event. And so they worked with the school and all the kids. And um, so Pheasants Forever, I'm pretty sure, donated the, the seeds for that. And Audubon advised on, you know, how to how to teach the kids about some of the um, species that would benefit from that. Um, we took the kids out and did a seed collection um, in addition to the, the donation from PF. And um, so we had 1,200 kids <laughs> come out wow. and uh, help to plant this prairie. And it was really fun to watch them come out. You know, they're spreading their seed and then they're stomping on it and, um, you could just tell it was a really exciting day for them, you know, to get out of school a little bit and go play in the field and, um, you know, take pictures of their seeds on the ground. And that then uh, became part of the curriculum for the school. And so they're now using the prairie kind of an, as an outdoor classroom. Um, so that's that's another example of the kind of collaboration that we can do, especially to, to introduce, you know, kids to to conservation. Yeah. I am almost positive that the Pheasants Forever chapter here in my hometown of Duluth, St. Louis County Pheasants Forever, I believe they did the same thing because there's a, there's a local school nearby me and I was driving by one day and I looked over and I saw a Pheasants Forever uh, habitat sign right by the school. And it said something about it being a school project. I just thought that was so cool. Huh. Yeah, that's great. I love those projects. It's always nice to see kids um, learning about, you know, native plants and prairie and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you have not always worked for Audubon. And but but I do believe from talking to you, I think that 
the outdoors, but not necessarily hunting, which is what we'll eventually transition into. But the outdoors have kind of been a part of your life for some time. So take us back a little bit to the beginning. How did you get introduced to nature? How did you get introduced to the outdoors? And then how did that eventually lead to you working for Audubon and and, uh, upland hunting, which we'll talk about? Yeah, how much time do we have today? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. So I grew up in Iowa, uh, corn country. You know, our football field was right next to a cornfield. And uh, so, I mean, the outdoors was pretty just inner, you know, it was there all the time when I was growing up. And um, we had a lake, you know, nearby. I did a lot of detasseling, um, if people know what that is. I don't. Basically, just plucking the tops off of corn. You walk through Ah. a field and pull the tops off the corn stalks. Um, But you get paid decent money, you know, especially for a teenager. Um, So I spent a lot of, yes, exactly. So you, you know, I learned a lot about what to wear in certain kinds of weather, how to get through a really boring long walk. Um, So, you know, things that set me up a little bit for, for what would come later on. Um, and I think like a lot of people who, who end up really outdoorsy later on, um, in college, you know, I didn't do a whole lot. I went trail running at a state park, you know, I went on the occasional camping trip, but, um, it really, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't central and, um, it wasn't until I got done with college and was looking for jobs and it was kind of right on the cusp of the great recession. So, 2007, 2008. Um, and I just could not find a job that I was excited about. So, uh, I found an ad online that, um, said, come experience Alaska. I was like, sure. I've never been to Alaska. I don't, I don't know much about it, but sounds fun. Um, and it was for a year long trail building job and it was an AmeriCorps position. And so basically I'd be moving up to Alaska, taking with me whatever I could carry on my back, you know, a tent and a sleeping pad, and then living in the woods for eight to 10 months, uh, doing trail work out in, um, you know, Bureau of Land Management lands, Forest Service lands, uh, National Park, State Park lands. So um, that that first exposure to, like, really being outside um, I, I kind of just went head first and, um, it was hard, you know, when I first got there, I was really panicked. I didn't, I didn't know how it would go. I hadn't spent that long in the woods. So, uh, but after living in the woods for a year, um, you get pretty used to things and you start to like things like sleeping outside and, you know, smelling like campfire all the time. And, um, so that I would say that was the first stretch of time where I really started to see the outdoors as integral to my identity. Um, And then once I got done in Alaska, I loved it so much. And I met so many people from Minnesota and Alaska that I moved to Minnesota to work in the Boundary Waters doing similar work. Um, I was based out of Grand Marais, actually up the Gunflint Trail for a while. And we did a lot of clearing portages and um, canoeing out and restoring some of the campsites that, that you might sleep at um, in the Boundary Waters. And so I did that for a season. And then um, I was fortunate enough to, to get a communications position with state parks after after those two trail building terms. 
so that's really, <laughs> and that all led into me eventually um, coming to Audubon. Yeah, I would say you definitely dove in head first with going and doing trail building in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, um, there were a lot of things that I had to learn the hard way. You know, um, I think the biggest one was having earplugs. Uh, when you're all sleeping in tents, people tend to snore. Uh-huh. And having having earplugs is pretty critical. Um, the other thing is in Alaska, it stays bright for a really long time in the summer. Yeah. So uh, something to have over my eyes was also a really important piece of staying sane out in the woods. Any interesting stories or, or craziness that happened up in the wilderness up in Alaska, or was it pretty much uh, just living outside and clearing trails? Uh, well, there are a lot of crazy stories. The problem is they all take so much context that uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell them in a succinct time, but sure. um, I can tell you. So I lived in Alaska once and I, I missed it. So um, after spending about four years in Minnesota, I ended up moving back to Alaska for for a little while. And um, when I went back up there, I visited a little village called Yakutat. It's in southeast Alaska. It's world famous for its steelhead fishing. So when you're on the plane on the way into Yakutat, every single person on the plane has has a fly rod with them um, during you know the run. And so I uh, I was doing some work in Yakutat, and so I went to visit and was hiking along this beach. And so normally when you're looking for grizzlies, you look up towards the tree line because uh, normally they'd be coming out of the woods. And there's there's about 400 people in Yakutat, and there are about as many grizzly bears. And these are these are pretty sizable bears because they have so much steelhead and salmon and other fish to feed on. So they're doing pretty good. And so walking along this beach, looking up towards the trees, and then all of a sudden there is just this like bursting, bubbling, growling thing coming out of the water off to my left. And I look over and this grizzly bear is just like rising out of the water and <laughs> all of your training. So you get, I mean, when you get to Alaska, one of the biggest things is like everybody teaches you how to handle bears. Sure. If you're around, you know, if you're going to be outside, you have to know how to handle them. <laughs> and the, the thing that everybody tells you is don't run, right? Like scream back, look as big as you can, you know, stand on top of something, but do not run, right? Because then you're prey. And it, you know, it's just that instinct. So this roaring, bubbling, wet, giant, angry thing that's emerging from the water is looking right at me. And it was this moment of like, well, if I'm going to die, I might as well look brave doing it. So, (laughs) you know, I stood there and like, just like, tried to stand my ground. And and luckily, I think it was just annoyed ultimately. I mean, it's very scary when it's happening, but I think it was actually just like, ah, you ruined my bath or, you know, I almost had a fish, you know, like it was almost like the bear was like, God, why do you have to be here? (laughs) (laughs) And then it ran off the other direction. So I was, I was okay. But um, I did walk over afterwards and get photos of, uh, the grizzly bear imprints in the sand. Um, and I think that's when it sunk in. Like I, I hadn't really totally panicked yet. And then I went over and saw how, how deep the holes were where its claws had been. Yeah. And that was um, really, really brought home for me <laughs> how bad that situation could have ended up. I would imagine so. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't, I've been to Alaska. 
I don't think I saw any bears when I was there. I was on a fishing trip in Sitka. I've been, you know, I've been out west a little bit. I don't think that I have ever seen a grizzly bear, but I suspect that if I were to see one in person, I would have that sort of that awestruck moment where, wow, that's a real thing. Look at that, you know. Yeah, I went back up there this summer um, and went hiking in Juneau, just outside of Juneau. Um, the Tongass National Forest up there is incredible. If if folks haven't been up there, um, it's just you feel like you're in a fairy tale land. Like it's it's foggy and there's giant trees and there's moss everywhere and you can pick berries off of everything. Um, but yeah, obviously there there are still bears, and so I had a run in with a black bear when I was up there. But luckily my instincts kicked in and I just yelled at it and stood my ground and then it ran the other way. But, um, it's, it's kind of a fact of life up, up in Alaska to, to run into bears. Yeah, definitely. Being that that was before your upland hunting days, do you recall the presence of upland birds when you were up there building trails? Were you flushing grouse? Once in a while. Okay. Um, when I was in the boundary, water, <laughs> when I was in the boundary waters for sure, um, there was one time when we were, I think we were closer to Ely and we were hiking along and, and this kid was in front of me and he, um, he was very much like a kind of a city boy, hadn't been in the woods a whole lot. And I mean, he was really embracing it. Like I was proud of him for going for it, but sure. you know, he, he wasn't used to certain things and this grouse flushed in front of him. And of course, like it, it scares you a little bit, but it just, he hit the deck. Like he <laughs> laid out on the ground and like had a, I think he had like an ax in his, you know, cause we'd carry our tools around. And so I think he had an ax in his hand and he like hit the ground and you saw him like, like bring up the ax, like he was going to, you know, defend himself with, with it. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> well, I can, you know, being, being somebody that has had the good fortune of flushing many, many grouse, I would say I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say that has much more to do with the, uh, the startling flush of the rough grouse than uh, <laughs> his masculinity or anything like that. Cause they can right. absolutely <laughs> take you by surprise. All right, Ashley. Well, we kind of talked a little bit about your background and, sort of some of the connections that you have to upland birds, nature, given your work, given your experience. But ultimately why I wanted to have you on is because I wanted to talk to you about some of your more recent upland hunting experiences. We've talked a lot about R3 on this podcast recently, recruitment, retention, reactivation. I know you're well aware of it. And uh, you are within, uh, I don't know, the last handful or so years, uh, a new introduced upland hunter, right? Correct. Tell me about your first experiences. How did it come to be? Because I think that's the question that with respect to a lot of the discussion we've had around R3, I'm very curious to find out how upland hunting was suggested. You know, what was your first contact and how did you eventually end up going on your first upland bird hunt? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, how, how do people get into it? And especially a group like women who haven't, um, haven't in recent memory, uh, been very included in the sport. Of course, historically sure. <laughs> women have been hunting and fishing for a very long time, yeah. but yeah, culturally in the U S it hasn't, um, it hasn't been that way for a little while. So, um, I would say, you know, I talked about all that time I spent outdoors and the conservation Corps here in Minnesota does a really great job kind of getting you used to being outside. And that's something I think that it's kind of underrated in recruitment is that, um, 
you know, if you're trying to get somebody to hunt, but, you know, they don't necessarily know how to be outdoors. They have to learn about all the gear. Um, there's so much that's foundational to just being comfortable in all sorts of weather and in all sorts of habitats um, that that does lay a foundation. So, you know, I didn't hunt or fish at that point, um, but, you know, what I was doing was learning a lot about how to navigate the woods, um, how to read certain landscapes, understanding the way that water works, you know, if you're, you're canoeing or boating. So um, I would say Conservation Corps was really foundational to helping me become an outdoors person. Um, beyond that, as um, over the years, you know, I got into fishing a little bit and that was, um, that was really fun uh, when I had lived in Louisiana for a little while. But I got back to Minnesota about three years ago and um, a lot of my friends had got up married or had kids. And so kind of had to rebuild this network. And um, I, I went to a couple of different meetings, you know, outdoorsy stuff that included hunters and anglers. And I just started to meet people who just started asking me, like, do you want to go out? Like, would you want to go trap shooting? You know, would you, would you want to go pheasant hunting? And um, I thought about it long enough, you know, like I grew up in Iowa, so I've, I've always been around hunters and anglers, but um, it was really people asking you know, people I liked and I thought that, you know, they, they were interesting and seemed to have a good conservation ethic. Um, and we talked a lot about food, right? Like wild game. So, um, for me, it was, it was showing up to outdoor stuff and having hunters just seem really approachable and, and really open to handing off their knowledge. Um, as you know, uh, we are in an age where a lot of people are not growing up with that tradition of hunting. And I think what's really important for almost any hunter to remember is you are absolutely representing hunters as a whole. When you talk to somebody who's maybe never met a hunter before, or they've not been out hunting, um, really keeping in mind that even if they don't end up hunting with you, um, you are representative to them of what a hunter is like. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And I'm not surprised coming from somebody that works in communications, but very well done and good reminder for all of us, <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, every, you know, I've met such amazing people through that network and it did make a big difference for me um, to have women as mentors that first year to have women say, Hey, let's go trap shooting this night. We'll grab a beer afterwards and and talk about whatever, you know? And so it just, it felt more like it was getting together with a group of friends than it was, you know, this really intimidating thing, which certain parts of it were, you know? Um, and <laughs> I, I had befriended Tom Landwehr, the, the previous DNR commissioner, and he invited me and another woman to um, to go to the pheasant opener and kind of be his guests and um, act, you know, as representative of, like you said, this this new kind of demographic of younger women who are looking to get into hunting. And uh, I had never hunted before pheasant opener. Um, so, uh, so pheasant opener 2016 was my very first time hunting. I was there with the current DNR commissioner, a whole bunch of people I didn't know, going out into fields I'd never been in, um, and walking up on birds that apparently would scare the crap out of me, um, <laughs> as, as you, as you came up on them. So, um, 
you know, that was really, it was intimidating, but luckily I've been to enough, you know, media events and that sort of thing that, um, I knew a lot of it is like just getting out and, and being there together. And, you know, the, the hunt itself is almost, you know, actually getting a bird is almost secondary. So it was a really good day. I had a really good time. Um, I really appreciated Tom's, uh, mentorship, but, you know, over time, what, what happened is I, I just kept going out with these women that I loved being around. We laugh all the time. We share stories. You know, we share um, tips for staying comfortable in the field. Um, you bring cookies and snacks for each other. And over time, like, it just becomes being out there with your friends. And it's, you know, if you end up with a meal at the end of the day, you know, a bird that you got, um, then that's great. But, it again, getting the bird almost became secondary. And I think that was a big conception, misconception of mine coming into hunting. Um, a lot of what the public sees of hunters, somebody holding up, you know, dead bird, dead deer. And for someone who doesn't do it, that's um, that image is what they see and what they attach to, to that person. Um, what happens though, when you go out into the field, ask somebody who hasn't grown up with hunting, um, you, you start to see all of these other aspects that exist, like being able to read the habitat, knowing where the pheasants are, um, watching the dogs work and getting attached to the dogs, um, that camaraderie between you and other hunters. So um, I think for me, it was getting into hunting and just realizing like there, there was this whole world that was really exciting and welcoming. And um, yeah, I just I really fell in love with it. It's a great story. I mean, obviously, I'm happy to have another another upland hunter out there, and, and I think you're a great ambassador and representative of it. You answered one of my questions in that I was very curious to know if you walked into it with some preconceived notions, and you kind of mentioned the one where it was, you know, it was all about the bag limit, and I I can't blame you one bit for, you know, or anybody for, for potentially thinking that because, yeah, you're going to see a lot of pictures of the grip and grin photos where somebody's holding a bird or a deer or whatever. And I don't know that I've ever thought about it exactly the way that you phrased it, but it's almost like if you're getting resistance from somebody on hunting, try to put yourself in their shoes and maybe all they've ever seen are those grip and grin photos and think about how can you communicate and translate everything else. The stuff that once you actually set foot into the field and experienced it, it was like so obvious to you, especially since you kind of came prepared with your background in the outdoors, you know, you, you had kind of already built up this outdoors identity through some of your work and some of your jobs. So you, you came prepared from that respect. It was just, you know, the birds, the guns, the dogs, that was all new to you, but it's really interesting to kind of think about it from that perspective. Yeah. And I will say, Mark Norquist, who owns Modern Carnivore, was was someone who I also had worked with, and um, he he was kind of interested in that I was interested in hunting, and so even got some footage of me hunting that first season. Um, and and when I talked with Mark, a lot of what came up in the conversation was the wild game and the food aspect, and I think. You know, like for, for people who have been doing it for a long time, the food the food is a piece of it, right? Um, and getting a bird is a piece of it, but it's a lifestyle and it's something that they enjoy the group of people that they're with, you know, or they, they enjoy, you know, working with their dog. So those connections are really key. But if, if you're coming in from the outside, 
food is actually a really great entry point because it's it's not as intimidating if you try some pheasant or you try some grouse and you realize that oh like this is kind of like turkey um i think it's less intimidating it's like oh if i get a meal out of it that's great and so it's a really good gateway and a starting point for people who who don't know what else they might have in common with hunters and and why they may want to pursue that lifestyle. So um, I think that that was a, that was a pretty key part of that first year as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I suspect that well-prepared wild game has probably converted many hunters, many non-hunters into hunters in the past and probably, and hopefully will continue to do so. But that is a, that's a great entry point. Did you have any, given that you grew up in Iowa, I, I would imagine that guns weren't foreign to you or anything like that, but was there, was that a hurdle for you at all? You know, firearm safety and, and learning about guns. It sounds like you had some good mentors that, that took you trap, trap shooting and kind of walked you through that. But what was that experience like? I did grow up in Iowa. So yeah, a lot of people I knew had guns. I mean, um, when I was in middle school, we, we went on field trips and, you know, went trap shooting or whatever. I mean, it was only a couple of times. So it, it was a long time ago, but, um, when, when I got into hunting, I, you know, I, I was intimidated by that. And part of that again is if you're not actively part of that world, um, all you see is, is stuff in media. And, you know, like, I think that there is a conversation, you know, that needs to be had about compromise. But I also think that, um, exposure to being around guns in a, in a safe environment, um, where people are really responsible, um, and they, you know, they think about their choices was that shift, you know, just, just being around friends that I really trusted, um, who were really smart about their decisions. Um, when you're standing next to somebody with a firearm, you want to trust them a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so that was, that was a piece of it. And, you know, I think, I think now it, I, I don't think about it much, you know, the intimidating part, but something that I've talked to other ladies about is as somebody's getting into hunting, I think initially not even carrying a gun with you, like just going out into the field and doing a walk along. Yeah. And even if it's carrying a stick, you know, and it's just kind of that act of like thinking about having it with you. Um, I think that would be a really helpful first step for, for a lot of, you know, new people, um, is, is just getting them out there, giving them context for what they're going to do out there without having to think about, um, how, you know, how their, um, firearm works. Yeah. hundred percent. And along those lines, if you, you know, if we were to take, if you were to take, uh, basically make a pie chart out of a day in the field and you were to basically put the the time that you're using and shooting the gun into one piece of the pie and then the rest of the pie would be times that you're not using the gun and it's everything else i mean you and i both know how tiny of a sliver that would be <laughs> of, of actually using and shooting the gun and so to get somebody out there where they can experience the other 95 percent of exactly what you're out there doing i mean yeah that's a great great first step i would think that would be a really really good tactic you know to use on somebody that's that's expressed interest in hunting for sure yeah and i mean there there's so many aspects to that 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 take a lot of research and understanding you know the sizes 
of different guns, the ammunition, um, that, that whole piece is, you know, a whole learning process in and of itself. Yeah. When you and I were talking, uh, I was a week or two ago, we were kind of setting the stage for this podcast. I was interested in your perspective in the sense that you took up upland hunting as an adult later in life. And I was kind of relating to you that, you know, I, I started hunting when I was a kid and the difference between an adult and a kid, I think oftentimes is kids have, whether it's them just being naive or having like a more of a, a focused mindset. They don't, they're not thinking about everything else and they're, they're less anxious about certain situations. So that you kind of have this inherent confidence. Whereas if I am to take up something new today in my adult life that I know nothing about, I'm going to have some reservations. I'm going to have some anxiety about it. Like that's just kind of in my nature. And so I was kind of curious how that worked for you getting into up and hunting and you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but I mean, was it, what was the, what was the key to getting you through that? So I think especially with grouse hunting, right, where you're out in the woods, you're hiking through areas that you're very aware could be tick laden. Um, You never know what branch is going to hit you in the shin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're also trying to keep an eye on the people that are next to you. And so when you're learning, it's it's a lot to take in. Um, For me, though, I really like upland hunting because of how much you move around. I I do work an office job. I, you know, so I sit all week. And so the last thing I want to do on my weekends is sit. So it's really active. You're out there with people you like, um, and you're walking through some of the prettiest parts of Minnesota. I mean, some of those Northern woods are just absolutely stunning, you know, any time of the year, right? So end of summer, you get the really gorgeous colors, um, you know, and then even as the leaves start to fall, um, depending on what day you get out there, it seems like the woods just change all the time. And you really, you get to know the personality of the outdoors of these woodland areas in Minnesota. And, you know, I'm not from Minnesota, but I I would say Minnesota feels most like home to me because I know so many of the natural areas. Um, and when you're out there hunting, you're also getting to know the birds and the wildlife. And, um, you know, as somebody who works for Audubon, my, my birds, my bird ID skills come in handy. And that was something I noticed too, when I first started getting into this, um, was that we'd be out grouse hunting but I'd also get to, you know, point out a flicker or a pileated woodpecker or, um, you know, you'd see cedar waxwings. Um, like you mentioned, there are golden winged warblers in certain areas in northern Minnesota. So um, I found that even though I was doing this one thing, I got to do, you know, all these other things along with it. Yeah, I think a common trait or interest among a lot of hunters in general, but upland hunters for sure would be observation. You know, the, the interest in observing your surroundings, I mean, that plays right into hunting. And again, that's another thing that I think you kind of brought to the table. I have a question for you. Do you have, do you have a favorite bird? (laughs) (laughs) I, or do you just like them You can, you can probably guess how often I get asked that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. About every day, I'm guessing. (laughs) Um, I mean, I would say non-game, uh, Arctic terns are a bird that I really loved when I lived in Alaska. Um, for those who don't know, they, they kind of look like if 
you took an origami bird and you turned it into the real thing. Like they're very angular and long lines. Um, but they are one of the best flyers in the world in that they migrate the entire, uh, the entire length of the earth and back every single year. So they fly from as far North as you can get to as far South as you can get. Um, and so they're really good at fishing. They're really good at flying. Um, and they're just, they're really pretty to watch. Is that insane or what? The far, as far north as you can go to as far south as you can go. That's that's just wild to me. It is. But, I mean, you know, it speaks to the work that we do with bird conservation, right? Like yeah. all of all of the different groups that focus on birds. I mean, these, <laughs> these incredible creatures go from place to place. They somehow know where to go. They they feed themselves. They, they're, you know, constantly in the elements, right? Like they're they're out there. And um, the ability to survive, despite all of the things that they go through, is just once you start studying them and, and you figure out their adaptations and kind of the, the stories that individual birds tell, you know, it just you really get into it and you get excited about it. And I know, um, especially like with grouse, um, I've been referring to them as the sonic boom bird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, cause a lot of people don't know, um, if they've never been in the North woods, they don't, they don't know the grouse drum. Um, and so, uh, I love, I love whenever I see a story about somebody hearing a grouse for the first time and being like, what is that weird thumping noise? Yep, yep. <laughs> why is there a, a lawnmower starting or what, you know, a lot of, the, <laughs> a lot of the things that people say. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so I love that because again, like that's a really good entry point. And then they get to learn more about the bird and they get to learn all these, you know, all these crazy facts about um, these creatures that live in the woods and again, scare the crap out of you when you're walking down the trail. But um, yeah, I mean, birds in general, I'm just really fascinated by them because they connect so much. And when it comes to conservation, they're just such a good representative of how we're doing um, with, you know, managing our lands and waters. Yeah. I'm totally biased, but I agree. I agree with that hundred <laughs> percent. So how was your, your first hunt? Did you, were you fortunate enough to shoot a bird on your first day in the field? I, I did not. Uh, like I said, it was at pheasant opener. So I think a lot of the day was spent making sure that I didn't accidentally shoot anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> especially another person better to be so, safe better to be safe that's a, that's, a, that's a good way to go about it actually yeah um but the second time i actually did i got a pheasant and i was out with a group of ladies um i forget i think it was part of women's hunting and fishing um it's a group that betty wilkins started okay uh for folks who don't know betty she is just she is um a real pillar in conservation in minnesota and um you know, she's done a lot of different stuff, but she right now really wants to get, you know, women connected and and talking to each other about their new hunting and fishing experiences. So um, and that mentorship is really big. It's it's important to find those mentors. And so Betty Wilkins had kind of pulled this group together and we all went hunting um, and I got <laughs> I got a pheasant. And by that point, I had seen enough birds flush that I had an idea. Um, but, you know, when you're new being able to actually shoot while the bird is still in front of you is like, 
I, it's everything. Yeah. Like it's, it's a very hard process. So, um, I did end up getting a pheasant that day though. And I made cilantro lime tacos out of the bird. Nice. And I think that's when it really all came home to me again. Like I think food is such a good gateway because it was interesting. Like I had flashbacks when I was eating my tacos, <laughs> right? Like, like I had these like moments where I was like thinking about the day that I had and like the fun we had out there in the field and, you know, the setting sun and the, the waving grass. And it was like, just this really like normally when you pick up a chicken at the store, you know, like the only images you're getting is like peeling the shrink wrap off of it. Right. Yep. But when you go hunting, it's not just the experience in the field. It's also, you know, as you're preparing your food, you know exactly where it came from. You know that it was your hands that harvested it. Like it, it really did. Like it just brought everything home for me. And um, I think that was the first time when I was really like, Oh, I get it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that is a, it's a good reminder. I'm sure some people are better at it than myself, but to when you sit down to eat a wild bird. In fact, I did it last night. I had some sharp tails yesterday, last night for dinner that I either, they were either from North Dakota or Montana, but I think I thought about it when I was cooking them. I I sort of fondly reflected on my trip out there, but almost wished I would have paused like before I dug in and like really put myself in on the prairie in September and thought about that. And fortunately I have I have another one that I'm going to cook tonight. So I'll have to remember to do that. But that's, again, you're, you're new to it. So it's all, you're like really taking all this stuff in. And I feel like it's just, it's a really important reminder to somebody like myself and other people that have listening that have been doing this for a lot longer. And you, it's human nature. We tend to take these things for granted. And like, it's like a lot of the stuff you're saying, I'm just like, yeah, I, I know that feeling. I need to, I need to feel that more often. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just so much more meaningful knowing what went into it. And, you know, I, I value the meat that I have so much more now whenever, whenever I do have pheasant or grouse or, you know, I got elk the other day from someone and it just knowing, knowing what goes into it makes it that much more special when you're eating it. So I do, I really appreciate that about hunting. Yeah. So you've had a taste for upland hunting. I get the sense that you've really enjoyed it no plans on slowing down. Do you have, do you have uh, plans to continue to pursue it? You got a, you got a bird dog coming yet or not yet? <laughs> that I get asked that question a lot. And <laughs> I, I wish that I could say yes, because I, that is one of my favorite parts about going out with friends is getting to see that relationship between the owner and the dog and like, just how smart they are. Like, yeah. aren't, aren't dogs the best? Like yes. they give you looks sometimes where you're like, you don't even, you don't have to say anything. I know exactly what you're saying to me right now. Like (laughs) that look says everything that I need to know about you judging me for missing that bird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so no, I, I love, I really enjoy being out there with the dogs, but, um, it's a lot of responsibility, you know? And I think having to be at the right time in your life where, um, uh, where you can take on that responsibility is, you know, very important. So I am just lucky enough to have a lot of friends who have dogs and they're happy to, to call me up when they want to go out. And, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I certainly don't plan on stopping anytime soon. Um, always, as soon as I get into to June, I start looking at fall and marking off days that we're going to go out. And, um, 
you know, even, even on days when it's not ideal to get out, um, you know, now I have kind of this network of people who we push each other. So um, Julia Schrenkler is somebody that I hunt with fairly often. And um, she, she and I, uh, last fall, there were a couple of times where we were texting each other before going and both of us being like, oh, it's going to be way too hot or it's going to be way too cold out today. Um, but, you know, we pushed each other. And so Julia would text me like, do you want to go? <laughs> and, we, you know, that that helping each other get outside is such a big aspect. It's so important. And, um, you know, on grouse opener, we ended up swimming more than we ended up hunting. Um, <laughs> and it was a great weekend though. You know, we hunted a little bit and then we hung out on the dock and we went swimming and, you know, hung out by the campfire. And so, you know, with, for me now, hunting is just kind of folded in to all these other things that I love to do. And, so, you know, I don't know that I always think of it as a hunting trip. I often just think of it as like a trip out with the ladies and hunting is going to be a piece of that. So I, yeah, it's not going anywhere for me. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm very, very glad to hear that. And obviously I'm pumped to, to know that you've had such a great experience with it and you found your way into it because I feel like you're in an awesome position now to you know, when the time comes, like, I'm sure you won't be shy about, you know, sharing your perspective. Obviously you're doing some of that on the podcast, but what kind of, what kind of advice do you have for people that are coming at it from a similar, you know, they didn't grow up hunting at all and they're interested about it. it sounds like you use the benefit of some of these outdoor groups to kind of find your way into it. But what would you tell somebody that's from the outside looking in and they want to get more involved in up and hunting? So for people who are really interested in even just learning more about hunting, so it, it doesn't even have to be that they want to do it yet, but they're interested in hunters as a group or just, you know, interested in learning. Um, becoming an outdoors woman, I cannot, I cannot recommend it enough. It is such a great way for women to get to know each other, get kind of an introductory course to something with really good teachers um, and it covers it covers so many different outdoor pursuits. So hunting is one of them, but it, it's also um, fishing and camping. And I think they've even done, you know, foraging, like looking for mushrooms. So they've they've got such a, a great team working on that. And so becoming an outdoors woman through the DNR is, is a big one. Um, and through programs like that, finding finding someone who can can kind of give you advice. And usually that person ends up being a good friend of yours. Um, I know the people who have mentored me the most have become close friends of mine. Um, and I think, you know, when I was first starting, so I can't necessarily speak for other people, but when I was first starting, I wish that what I would have heard more often was like, it's okay to be scared and it's, it's okay to be not sure. Right. Like, that is why having a mentor is so important is because having that person next to you who can see that you're a little scared or you're a little nervous um, and seeing that they are patient with you helps you to be patient with yourself and to know that like you can't as a new hunter, you cannot compare yourself to somebody who's been doing it for decades. Right. So, um, but it's hard to remember that when you're learning anything, right. Like, yes you compare yourself automatically and, and that can contribute to feeling intimidated. Um, so the less intimidated you feel, the more likely you are to do it again. 
So, you know, um, for anybody who gets out there, uh, finding a mentor, getting out with a group of people you're comfortable with, um, and, and really like not being afraid to ask questions, (laughs) um, you know, and if you do ask a question, somebody gives you a funny look, just set it aside, Google it later. Right. You know, like just, just keep going for it. Yeah, definitely. That's, you know, that's a very common response to that kind of a question is find a mentor, but it just goes to show that it's, that is how important it is. And I think when I was being mentored in hunting, you know, I still have people that mentor me today in hunting and in various aspects of it. But when I was younger and I was being mentored, you know, you don't necessarily think of it as that kind of a relationship, but ultimately that's what it is. It's, it's, it's the power of a mentor and them being able to help you navigate, you know, all those questions you have and the uncertainties. And it, it is really, really important. So that's a, it's a great answer. I'm glad you highlighted that. Do you have your own shotgun? Have you been borrowing people's guns or do you now have a shotgun of your own? I have one shotgun. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to stick with for now. Um, like you said, I mean, I'm mostly upland hunting, so I don't, I don't need a big range of, of different, you know, not just guns, but tools of all sorts of kind, you know, like, I mean, when you get into other kinds of hunting, um, you need all sorts of different things like more camo, right? Like I don't even have a lot of camo right now. Like most of my stuff is blaze orange. Sure. Um, and (laughs) that, that price tag is enough of an an investment. And I've, I've been so grateful for people who, you know, are really excited for me and really, you know, like deer hunting's next and this is next. And, um, I appreciate the enthusiasm and, you know, I might get there at some point, but I think, especially for someone who's new, um, remembering that hunting is expensive and getting all that gear, especially, um, like for me, when I work at a nonprofit, um, I have to really budget to make sure that it happens, you know, make sure that I have the money for the trips for the gear, uh, for the ammunition. So, you know, there are so many pieces that actually tie back into your finances. Um, and you know, like (laughs) I, I would not oppose some of those training courses, including, and this is how to not get totally off your budget while you're learning (laughs) to hunt. (laughs) It can be a very gear crazy endeavor. And, I mean, that can be part of the fun, but you can also get carried away with it. And I do think that is one of the real advantages to upland hunting is that it can be very simplified, right? Like like a shotgun is probably the most serious, intense thing that you need to acquire. Uh, other than that, you can pretty much make do with regular stuff other than some blaze orange to meet legal requirements. But certainly, you know, we could go on for days about having the right kind of boots and the right kind of headwear and eye protection and all that stuff, but you can come at it from a very simple approach. But I was curious about the gun because was that a, was that a tough thing for you to buy or did you have somebody that kind of shuttled you in the right direction on that? Or was it a pretty easy thing to go pick it up? Uh, luckily a friend of a friend is, um, she's a gunsmith in South Carolina. Um, and so just contacted her and said, this is what I'm planning on doing. What do you recommend? And uh, so I was able, you know, kind of through a network to, to find something, but I know that's not the case for everybody. And so, yeah, that's, it is a really intimidating part. And, um, you know, 
I, I don't know that I want to get totally into it, but there are a lot of personal ethical questions if you haven't owned a gun before um, that you work through in sure. the process. And, and I do think that that was kind of an intense part of it that um, I, I didn't really talk to anybody during that time period where um, I was explicitly saying, like, I'm I'm doubting this. I don't I don't know if I want to do this, you know. And and so I I think that's another thing, right, for new hunters um, is that alone is a pretty intimidating piece. Yep, definitely. Well, Ashley, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight to kind of share your story with us. That's what we try to do, try to highlight the stories of other upland hunters and yours, I feel, is unique in the sense that I don't believe we've had somebody on the podcast with with your story. And I think it's an important one to share because, again, we've talked a lot about R3 on this podcast, and it's a goal of ours to highlight the many, many ways that somebody can find themselves in the pursuit of upland birds, which is something that I love and and many of the listeners love. So thank you for sharing that with us. And we definitely appreciate it. If people are curious about Audubon, I'll uh, give you a chance to share a little bit. Where's the best place to go and and uh, look up information. I know I was on there the other day looking up detailed species profiles of rough grouse, woodcock, <laughs> and pheasant. So there is a, there's an educational aspect for upland hunters out there. There is. And uh, we recently launched a breeding bird atlas. So if anybody's interested in, in a little more information about you know where birds are breeding in Minnesota, we certainly have some of those game species maps. Um, but you can go to mn.audubon.org. Uh, to find out more about the work we do. Um, and I do just want to say, you know, we really appreciate all the hunters that do a ton of conservation work and have really invested, you know, their lives in a lot of cases um, into to keeping habitat healthy and keeping Minnesota wild and, you know, supporting public lands. So um, we're all kind of in this together. So I, um, you know, we appreciate everybody who invests in those in those pieces. Yeah. Likewise, same, same for you, Ashley. And, and obviously the organization that you work for, I think it's, we can't really have too much togetherness when it comes to, you know, conservation organizations. There's, there's a lot that we can get done together. And I think it's, and even a, even a brand an organization like Project Upland and Northwoods Collective, you know, that's like, we, we want to promote this stuff. And, and a lot of what we do goes hand in hand with what these conservation organizations are trying to accomplish. So I think that's cool. And that's a great note to end it on. So with that, I'll thank you again for your time, Ashley. And I uh, wish you the best of luck in your future upland hunting endeavors. And uh, if you ever want to come grouse hunting with me up north, let me know. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Good luck with the rest of winter. And I'll see you in the woods. Yeah, sounds good. Stay warm. All right. You too. See ya. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. As your host, Nick Larson, I'd like to thank you for tuning in each and every week. And I'd like to thank our partners on the Project Upland Podcast, bringing you each and every episode of the show. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Gordy and Sons Outfitters, Yukonuba Premium Dog Food, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Remember, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, or send us some email. I'd love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email, nick.larson and northwoodscollective.com. 
Don't forget to head over to projectupland.com to see everything else we've been up to, films, blogs, articles, gear reviews, and much, much more. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next show. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.